Welcome to the Explorer's Roundtable, where intrepid voyagers share tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. Here's your host for the evening, Jonathan Hal Reynolds. Good evening. Tonight at the Roundtable, we have American scientist and NASA astronaut Dr. Stan Love. He joined NASA in 1998 and served as a spacecraft communicator in mission control for multiple station expeditions and space shuttle missions. In 2008, he participated in his first space flight aboard Space Shuttle Atlantis, which was the 24th shuttle mission to visit the International Space Station. Dr. Love has logged over 306 hours in space, including two spacewalks. In 2011, he participated in an undersea expedition for NASA, with the Deepworker 2000 submersible, and he will play a vital role in mission control during the upcoming moon missions for the Artemis program. Dr. Love, thank you for joining us here at the Roundtable tonight. No problem. Looking forward to it. First off, what is your educational background? Tell us about your path to becoming an astronaut. Was it a dream you had as a child, or was it a path you chose later in life? Yeah, so I have uh, loved uh, science and science fiction since I was a kid. I watched the original Star Trek in the early 70s, um, so that kind of dates me. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, of course, Star Wars blew the top off my head when it came out in the late 70s uh, with the awesome special effects. Of course, that's not... It hasn't got much science in it. It's more of a Western. Mm-hmm. But um, So I knew I was interested in science and space, I uh, went to college, uh, majored in physics because I thought that would provide the most, uh, you know, diverse pathways going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I went to graduate school in astronomy for six years, earned a PhD up at the University of Washington, Seattle, Washington. Uh, after that, uh, and actually while I was there, we had an alumnus from my college who had gone off to be an astronaut and then later joined the University of Washington as a faculty member. And, uh, so he was there. I walked into his office and said, Hey, uh, can I do this? <laughs> and he says, yeah, you probably can. You should apply. So I started applying, um, I think in 1991 while I was still in graduate school, working on my PhD, um, finished up my PhD, worked a couple of postdoctoral appointments, <clears throat> then switched careers and moved to the jet propulsion laboratory as a spacecraft engineer. And all the while I kept sending in these applications. Meanwhile, I've been invited to Houston to interview a couple of times. Uh, the interview process lasts a week full of medical tests and tours and uh, a lot of very exciting things. And you're with a group of people that um, are so amazing that you wonder if you really belong there yourself. Um, but then uh, after I'd been at JPL for about a year on my third interview attempt in 1998, I was hired as an astronaut to Houston and I've been working here ever since. So I wouldn't say that being an astronaut was a uh, something I'd set my sights on and had to achieve, but it was consistent with what I liked and what I was doing. So I sort of kept ch- chipping away at it, and eventually I won the lottery. Wow, that's incredible. Obviously, very few human beings have traveled to space and experienced zero gravity. What does it feel like to see the Earth from outside the planet's atmosphere while floating in the vastness of space? Is it scary, lonely, elating? Did it change your perspective or life in any way when you returned home? Well, as an astronomer and the child of two environmentalists, the you know the sort of overview effect and the uh, sudden perception of the fragility of the Earth's atmosphere and environment, I, I already had that. So 
<laughs> I didn't have any real change there. Uh, but the earth is absolutely amazing. Um, when you stand on the earth and look at the moon at night, it looks, you know, bright and beautiful. And you get up into space and you look at the moon from low earth orbit, you're not really any closer to it. Um, and then look at the moon in comparison with the earth, which is bright and colorful and always changing. And the moon looks kind of small and dirty next to the earth. Um, it is actually very dark. It reflects only a small portion of the light that hits it. Uh, well, whereas the earth is bright and has all those colors and changes and, you know, the green of the land, the blue of the oceans, white of the clouds and ice caps. Uh, and it just, uh, is an amazing thing to look at and all astronauts favorite activity, uh, when they are not otherwise scheduled, which is most of the time, uh, is to look out the window at the earth because it is always beautiful and interesting and changing. Wow. It's just incredible. How did the Columbia tragedy in 2003 affect you personally and professionally? Did you know the astronauts on board and did the accident change your professional trajectory with NASA? Uh, it slowed it down dramatically. Um, you know, we were, we were flying shuttles regularly. We were building the International Space Station. At that time, uh, my, my group of classmates who all entered the astronaut office at the, in 1998 were in the, we were sort of in the middle of the class being assigned to flights. Everybody was looking forward to flying. A few of us had gone. Uh, the rest of us were itching to go and then tragedy. Uh, uh, we all knew everybody on that space shuttle. Um, that particular mission, um, was a low earth orbit life science mission. And all the other missions during that time were building the space station. The space station mission was, um, challenging. So you launched out of Florida, you immediately went into a rendezvous and that was a big deal. You know, in the early shuttle program, most missions went into orbit, popped out a satellite and came home and having something with a rendezvous was a big deal. So you rendezvoused and docked with the station. Then you had multiple spacewalks, EVAs, uh, to add a part to the space station. Uh, you had operations with the robotic arm. So before we started building space station, the only missions that had all that were the Hubble space telescope servicing missions. And those, we only put the creme de la creme astronauts on, and you wouldn't really want to put too many rookies on that flight because it was incredibly complicated. Now, suddenly we're going to the space station and not only do you have everything you had in a Hubble mission, but now you have a second robotic arm on the space station and the two have to work together and the same, you know, the crew members have to work together to coordinate those. And everybody on the shuttle had to understand how the space station worked because you may end up being over on the space station having to work space station systems. So suddenly every mission was the most complicated mission NASA had ever flown. Um, and they weren't putting a lot of rookies on the flights because they wanted veterans there to make sure they got it all right. So we were working through the new list of astronauts and then all of a sudden tragedy. Now that STS-107 crew, they were not going to station. They didn't have spacewalks. They didn't even carry the robotic R. If they had, they might've been able to inspect their heat shield a little bit. Um, so they'd asked early on, Hey, does anybody really want to go on this flight? Cause it's going to be long. You're not doing the exciting, fun rendezvous, EVA robotic stuff. Instead, you're going to be taking, you know, femur bone biopsies that is stabbing a giant needle into your own leg and taking a piece of bone out for research. And so, um, the people who put their hands up for that mission, um, 
as it turned out, were sort of the nicest people in the office. Everyone is competent. Not everyone is nice. So these were like the most wonderful people that we had in the office and suddenly they were gone. And then we lost one of our orbiters and we can't replace those. And we were down flying for almost three years. We had to do a lot of soul searching on what we did wrong as an agency, as, a, as an office, as a flight control community. Um, so it was very uh, heart-wrenching for all of us. It felt like we lost family. And um, so there was a long period there where we were sort of, those of us who were not yet assigned to a flight were wondering if we were ever going to get assigned to a flight. But eventually we got back to flying again, uh, convinced ourselves that we could do it uh, safely enough. Flying in space is never going to be completely safe. Um, and got going again. And then, so that was in 2003, I was assigned to my mission, STS-122, in 2006 and flew in 2008. Can you tell us about that mission and what your role was on it? Um, so by that time, they'd figured out that a rookie who'd been in the astronaut office for 10 years was almost as good as a veteran who'd already flown. So we had a lot of rookies on my flight. Um, our space station assembly designation was 1E which means we were the first space station assembly flight for the European Space Agency. So we carried the Columbus Laboratory module uh, up to orbit, uh, docked with the space station. We attached that module to the space station. Uh, our crew did three spacewalks, of which I did two. We had a lot of robotic arm operations. Um, we had to inspect our heat shield with a brand new 50-foot inspection boom. We had to do that after we launched and then again before we landed. Um, we, of course, used the station robotic arm to pull that bus-sized laboratory module out of the shuttle's payload bay and attach it to the space station. Um, we transferred a bunch of cargo. We uh, brought up a new station crew member and brought home a crew member who'd been up there for four months. Um, all that took about two weeks, and we undocked from the space station, uh, spent a couple days free flying on our own, and then returned to land on the landing strip in Florida. Wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah, good good stuff. And then my job, my jobs were as easy as one, two, three, four. So I was R1, that is the the lead crew member in charge of the shuttle's robotic arm. Mm. I was M2, that is, I was the number two guy for the station robotic arm. I was uh, EV3. We had three spacewalking crew members that we rotated the three spacewalks among. Um, and then I was MS4, mission specialist four on the shuttle means you sit down in the mid deck. And you're the guy that manages the hatch and the one who straps everybody in before re-entry and then has to strap themselves in, which is a challenge when you're wearing a heavy suit with gloves. I read that you enjoy martial arts. What martial art do you study and how has it played a role in your training as an astronaut? Um, so the martial art I study is Taekwondo. Um, actually, after the Columbia accident, when it looked like my career was going nowhere, I was looking for something to do where I could feel like I had was making some progress. Um, so I was actually interested in Aikido, which is a very defensive martial art from Japan. Um, uses a lot of uh, throws and joint locks um, to basically use an attacker's own strength against them. And philosophically, that's that's closer to what I do. But they didn't have Aikido, but what they had right here at the fitness center at Johnson Space Center was a Taekwondo class. So I went in and observed it. And I'm like, man, this is really aggro. Uh, <laughs> Taekwondo is quite an aggressive martial art, uh, use very powerful techniques, mostly, mostly lower body techniques. Um, it is also a competition sport and, and has been an Olympic sport since 1998 or 1988. Um, 
And I'm like, yeah, but the instruction was pretty good. And then I met the instructor of the instructor at NASA, and he is a wonderful guy. Uh, ninth degree black belt, sometimes world champion, Korean born. Resume goes on and on. And also probably one of the nicest people you ever meet. And his teaching style was not aggressive. Uh, it sort of sought to train everybody starting at the ability they had and, and improve them as possible from there. And I enjoyed that. And I kept showing up, uh, tested for my black belt just about the time I was ready to fly in space. And actually my shuttle commander forbade me from uh, doing board breaks. Uh, for my black belt test, which is normally part of a black belt test because I was an EVA crew member. And if I broke my hand, that would be fairly serious. So no, no board break. I didn't break any boards for my black belt test. Uh, and then a couple of years later, the instructor at uh, Johnson Space Center moved to another job and I was the most senior student. So I inherited it and I've been teaching there ever since. And this year I'm in the process of testing for six dots, six degree black belt. Um, it's great exercise. It's a lot of fun. Um, the, the culture of our school, which comes from the culture of my instructor's school, um, is very supportive and inclusive. I've had students as young as 14 and as old as 80 with all levels of ability. And it, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And my hope each day is to become the person my students think I am (laughs) for exercise. Taekwondo in particular, um, teaches you practice strength, flexibility, reaction, speed, coordination, balance. There's aerobic training. There's interval training. It covers all aspects of fitness better than anything else I've ever done. Um, physical fitness is important for, for astronauts, especially getting ready for spacewalks. Um, the suit is very hard to move in. I was in it yesterday. I still have big bruises all over my back from the suit. It's, it's tough work. Wow. Um, and Taekwondo is, is a good all around fitness that I would recommend for anyone. And no matter what your level of ability, you start where you, you are and you can get better. Can you tell us about the Deep Worker 2000 submersible and how the research you gathered with it might be used someday to explore the surface of an asteroid? This is back in 2010, I think we started using the Deep Workers as an analog for what a small spacecraft uh, to explore an asteroid might, might behave like. Um, one of our astronauts had a working relationship with Nutco, which is a company in Vancouver, Canada, which builds, uh, the Newt suit. You may have heard of that, you know, the big, the big sort of Michelin man suit for going very deep, uh, in a suit. And then they make these little tiny submersibles and operating underwater can be a lot like operating in space. Of course, the environment outside does not support human life. Uh, you can move in three dimensions the way you can't uh, on the surface of the earth but the way a spacecraft can. Now there's a difference, of course, a spacecraft can roll around its axis. The Deep Worker 2000 is very heavily weighted out so that it is always, you know, dome up and batteries down. Um, and then you can also pitch in space, move the nose up and down. And the Deep Worker can't do that either, but it can move forward, backward, up, down, left, right, and then it can yaw side to side. So it has four degrees of freedom where the spacecraft has six. Um, but then again, an airplane only has three and your car has two. So, uh, it's an excellent analog for a spacecraft like that. And then if we have a, uh, a spacewalking astro- astronaut on the surface of an asteroid, uh, this is an environment that is very hard to imagine, but we think that most small asteroids are basically just piles of gravel and dirt barely held together by their own self-gravity. 
And if you were near one, you could just push your hand right into the surface because the gravity holding the rocks down is so weak that they will just move aside easily with any force wow. that you on them. So you can just shove your hand right into this thing. And if you're moving around on it and you accidentally find yourself floating away and you grab a rock to keep from floating away, that rock will just come with you and off you go. So I don't think we're going to do spacewalks and you can't even put your feet down on this thing because with one one hundred thousandth of a of a G of force pulling you down, the slightest motion of your foot and you're off into space and you're not coming back. So that's kind of a problem for spacewalkers on space stations. We have these friendly handrails and you can hold onto those and move around. And if you're drifting away from station, you just pull yourself back with the handrail and everything is good. So it's a crazy environment. There's also dirt and dust. If you, if you brush things, dirt gravel is going to come flying around, right? around. So we would like to have a spacewalker who can do geology, grab samples, look at rocks, but not actually have to touch the thing. So if we had a small spacecraft, with somebody inside piloting it, and then the uh, spacewalker in their suit with their feet on a tow clip attached to that spacecraft, and the spacecraft can fly around with little teeny jets, being very careful not to plume the asteroid because then bits go flying everywhere, and they can move that astronaut around and benefit. If an astronaut's feet are secured, you can use your upper body and your hands the way you've been doing all your life. Um, on a spacewalk on space station, you're always having to use one hand to hold on. You could, and work is very difficult with that other hand. And the only time you can really use your, your body is if you move a portable toe clip somewhere, plug it into the structure of the space station, get into that, clip your feet in solidly, and now you can use your body the way you're used to. So having a little spacecraft allows us mobility and uh, the ability for a, a spacewalker to use their hands without disturbing this incredibly fragile rubble pile structure that they're trying to explore. You're an interesting astronaut in that you've spent a lot of time in deep ocean space as well. How has this juxtaposition of ocean exploration and space exploration informed the way you approach science and research? Has it impacted your perspective on issues like climate change? Uh, not really. To The experience I had in the deep worker and also my experience in space has been um, not focused on science. So my background's in science, planetary science. Um, I'm interested in climate change, but once you're in that environment where you're trying to do a task using complicated equipment in a dangerous environment, um, your focus is no longer on experiment design or on sort of the philosophy of science. It's, I have a job to do, I have equipment to monitor and I have to make sure that I'm staying safe in a very dangerous environment. And that sort of becomes your focus. Now, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the valuable experience of, you know, seeing how we do operations underwater and seeing the environment underwater and then also seeing the Earth's environment from space. Uh, but again, I think climate change is a problem. I think uh, we need to do something about it. I'm heartened by the things that are already happening. Um, to do something about it, but it's not really connected with my experiences in space or in the ocean. Can you tell us about your explorations in Antarctica? Antarctica is probably the best analog for another planet that we have here on Earth. Um, but uh, Asterix Fine Print, it's still pretty friendly compared to other planets. You can breathe. You can go outside for a walk. Uh, Antarctica is largely made out of water. You know, every every 18 months, we announced the discovery of water on Mars. And 
you know, it's like, well, we think there might be, you know, salty ice underneath the surface or, you know, water ice in the polar caps and that sort of thing. Antarctica is freaking made out of water. So you never run out of water and you can breathe the air. Uh, um, however, it's very cold. Um, just to go outside, you have to spend 10 or 15 minutes putting on a lot of warm clothes. So Antarctica has been used as an analog for space flight um, by a lot of groups over a lot of time. Separately, let's see, I think starting in the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, they started finding meteorites down there. And in the early 1970s, a Japanese group found like eight meteorites just sitting out on the ice in this uh, place that they were exploring. And that's a lot of meteorites. Uh, meteorites are pretty rare. Mm. Um, so starting in the 70s, the United States uh, began a program where each summer they would send a small team down to Antarctica to an area of what they call blue ice. Antarctica is always getting about two inches of diamond dust snowfall a year. So that two mile thick pile of ice at the South Pole accumulates at the rate of two in- or two inches or so a year. And that is always in the air. You look out, you, you look out and you see these little tiny speckles in the air and they're always kind of drifting down, drifting down. Of course, the wind blows around. But over centuries, millennia, thousands, millions of years, this piles up this giant pile of ice which is always trying to flow off the center of the continent and down into the oceans. So as the ice moves from, as the snow accumulates, meteorites rarely, because meteorites fall in Antarctica no more commonly than they do anywhere else, fall into the snow and just get buried. And then the ice, uh, as it gets more buried, uh, the air gets squeezed out of it. So instead of looking like fluffy snow, you go pretty deep, it starts looking like what they call fern, which is compacted white snow. Even deeper, the air starts getting squeezed out of it, and it looks like uh, a pale blue glass. And this ice is always flowing off the, the continent, and occasionally it runs into a barrier, like mountains or even mountains that are buried under the ice and don't even protrude out the top of the ice. <clears throat> and in some of those places, the ice will stagnate and the wind that's also always trying to flow off the side of the continent, sometimes at 200 miles an hour, gradually ablates the ice away and leaves behind the meteorites that have become embedded in it. So you can go to these blue ice places where that blue ice is exposed, and the areas where it's exposed looks like the flash-frozen surface of somebody's backyard swimming pool, kind of turquoise blue and rippled, Um, and the nearest earth rocks are a mile below your feet. So the only things sitting on the ice are meteorites Mm. so they accumulating over many thousands of years the motion of the ice and the ablation of the ice by the wind concentrates the meteorites as if you're for geologists a lag deposit and you can just go out there with a team of people on snowmobiles 10 meters apart drive up and down and every time somebody sees a black speck they stop they wave their hands everybody comes in we uh we take a picture of it, we tag it, we give it a field number, we stick it in a plastic bag, and somebody in a nice warm laboratory somewhere can figure out what it is. We don't have any science out there in the field. We're just collecting them. So uh, this expedition uh, has gone to Antarctica every year since 1976, uh, but one early on. And then for COVID, we've been shut down for three years, largely because the U.S. Antarctic program goes through New Zealand and they had very strict COVID restrictions. Mm. Also, the people they were letting down onto the continent we're doing science that if they didn't get out in the field that year, they were going to lose their experiment. The meteorites, they'll, they'll chill. They'll stay, they'll, they'll still be there a couple of years from now. So we don't, we don't, we did not have to get down there, uh, uh, 
chop chop to get those meteorites because most of them have been on Earth for two hundred thousand years, and a, and a couple three extra years is going to harm them any. So Antarctica is a great place to look for meteorites. The cold also preserves them. Many meteorites, uh, if you put water on them, they just sort of decay into dirt because they've been in a water-free environment for four and a half billion years. So if they fall in a swamp on Earth, no one's ever going to find that meteorite. Um, plus, you don't have very few Earth rocks to complicate the search, and the cold preserves them, and they're concentrated, so it's a great place to go look. So I had the good fortune to be invited along on an Antsmet ex- expedition in 2004, 2005. We go down there in southern summer, right? You can't go to Antarctica in southern winter. Uh, so it's a, the December of one year and the January of the next. Uh, in that case, um, there was already a relationship between Antsmet and the astronaut office. Uh, one of the scientists that had signed up for the expedition was not able to pass the medical exam. You have to uh, pass a strict medical exam before they let you down there. If something goes wrong with your body and you're down in Antarctica, you're at least three days away from a hospital and sometimes longer. So there's there's a medical qualification. So when that happens, they call the astronaut office because they have people who they know can do an expedition and they know are healthy. So I got to go down for that. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to be able to apply and go again in 2012, 2013. Each of those is uh, two months away from the United States. Uh, at Sort of after Thanksgiving, you fly to Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, get on a military transport, fly down to McMurdo Station, Antarctica. You spend about a week getting all your gear, uh, choosing your food for the next two months. You spend an overnight trip out on the snow and ice near McMurdo, where the temperature is only about freezing, so it's not that horrible. Uh, but you practice with all your gear and make sure you can light your stove and set up your tent. Uh, and then when that's all ready, pack all your gear into aircraft, they fly you off into some remote section of the high ice cap where people do not go, <laughs> set up your tents and get your snow machines and go out and look for meteorites. That spent, you spend about six weeks in the field. Then you do it all in reverse. Collect all your stuff, get in the aircraft, come back to McMurdo, clean and return all your gear, uh, and then fly back uh, via Christchurch to the United States. Uh, it's uh, an amazing expedition. Ansman has a website. If you're curious, you can look at that and learn much more about it. Uh, they have also got a pretty good Wikipedia article that explains uh, more about the expedition, but I love it down there. I actually liked it better than spaceflight. What are your thoughts on the Artemis program and the upcoming moon missions to work toward establishing a permanent lunar outpost? Do you know any of the astronauts partaking in the missions and why do you think it's taken us so long to return to the moon? I am hundred percent totally excited about it. Uh, I am not on that crew but I'm going to be in mission control sitting in the Capcom chair and talking to them on the radio. And I've already been preparing for that for two and a half years. So as soon as we started doing simulations for Artemis one, I was there in the Capcom chair. There was no crew to talk to, but I was learning systems, uh, learning the flight control teams, how we operate the vehicle so that when we're ready to jump into Artemis two Sims with a crew in the simulator, um, I will be ready for it. I'm also, my day job in the astronaut office is working spacecraft displays and controls. So I've been working the displays and controls for Orion since 2017. Um, in one way or another, I've been working on the SLS rocket as the crew representative on the engineering team that was developing the heavy lift rocket and the Orion vehicle since 2004. So I've already been preparing for this for almost 20 years. Um, so I'm thrilled wow. to see it happening already. Um, as to why it didn't happen earlier, it's political will. It costs a lot of money to do this stuff. Uh, in the 1960s and early 70s, 
We were in a race with the Soviet Union. We were concerned that this was a battle for domination of the earth and the loser would cease to exist, which is pretty serious. And you can get lots of money from Congress if that's your situation. That is no longer the situation. Um, you know, although we have terrible political disagreements with uh, Russia right now in space, we're still cooperating with them. Um, China is maybe a existential threat and you can kind of get some traction with that, but there just has not been that sense of fear and emergency and the future of the United States depends on this that we had in the 1960s. So absent that frightening environment, uh, it's taken a long time to get the will and the money together and get the technology together. And then of course we're developing a brand new rocket, brand new vehicle. Um, we're preparing, preparing to fly to an area of the moon that is like double hard. So it's like going to the moon is one thing. Going to the South Pole of the moon adds difficulties that is like going to the South Pole of the Earth. You know, it's dark half the time. When it's dark, the sun is right on the horizon, like you're driving to work with the sun in your eyes. Everybody hates that. Now let's land on a crazy uh, surface that's not prepared that where you can't tell if you're one mile up or a hundred miles up just by looking at it because it, it's all self-similar. It's fractal. You see craters, but you can't tell how big anything is uh, until you're like right there. Incredible challenges associated with this. We're working through them, uh, but uh, we are proceeding as fast as we can with the support that we have. So did I know the crew? Absolutely. I know them all very well. They're friends of mine. I've been working with them for years. I'm very excited to work with them. I'm uh, proud to know them. Uh, even if I can't be on that flight, I am going to be a key part of that mission, the, the communication link between mission control and the crew. Uh, every part of that vehicle has my inputs in it from 20 years ago, so I really hope it works. Uh, so it's been like part of my blood for 20 years and I'm, you know, of course I want to see him go as soon as possible, but I want to see him go safely with a working system and we'll take the time we need to make the system work. I teach American literature to university students as well as science fiction and fantasy, but I also teach an academic inquiry course about the ethics of artificial intelligence. I'm curious how AI is currently playing a role in space exploration and what you see its destiny being in the coming decades. Will AI and androids be doing our space exploration for us in the coming centuries for replacing the human element? So AI does not play a big role in space exploration right now. Right now, AI is really good at producing text and pictures. Uh, we don't do a lot of that in space exploration. I mean, <laughs> so a, a rudimentary AI is beginning to work its way into some of our information systems design. For the Lunar Gateway, a uh, small space station we're planning to build in lunar orbit at, to serve as a transit hub for stuff coming uh, to the surface of the moon and back. That is going to have much more capability than our spacecraft, uh, uh, past spacecraft to uh, diagnose its own problems and fix them and schedule activities by itself and execute those activities. Um, Gateway is a good, safe place to do that. Gateway is in a nice, stable orbit. Uh, nothing will, ha nothing bad will happen to the gateway that doesn't take a month or so to unfold. Whereas, you know, a spacecraft coming through the atmosphere, something goes wrong. You could be dead in five seconds. Uh, that's not the case on gateway. So gateway is a great test bed for that. And we're going to test it to death on uh, gateway because we're going to need it for Mars. So right now our space missions are all in close contact with mission control. We have a handful of astronauts in the spacecraft. 
They have limited room in their brains to know every single thing about that spacecraft. So they just know sort of the tip of the iceberg. And if something goes wrong that requires deeper knowledge, mission control is right there. On, on Mars or on the way to Mars, where the communication lag, it may be tens of minutes between asking a question and getting an answer. Um, we can't put all of the smarts of mission control into the brains of the crew. There's just not enough room. So the spacecraft itself is going to have to have more of those smarts built in. So when you know X failure happens, I'm going to execute Y procedure. We'll just build that into the software when it detects that failure it will go ahead and execute that procedure. So we're going to need AI to go into space further than a quick question and answer link with mission control, absolutely required for Mars. Uh, but that is only the first steps of AI. And then asking what the future of AI is like is like going back 200,000 years and asking what the future of fire is. Oh, we'll be able to cook meat. <laughs> so uh, it's a complex technology with immense promise and probably immense threats that go along with that. And I would hesitate to make any kind of predictive statement about what the future is. Androids in space. eh? so, I mean, already we have robots exploring space further out than humans can go right now. Um, and that will continue the robotic, uh, emissaries that we send out to go deeper into space. Uh, we'll get more and more sophisticated and have more and more onboard smarts and require less handholding from the ground, and they'll get better that way. Um, but as a, speaking as an astronaut who ha appears in public with some frequency and who has occasionally appeared in public alongside the people who do like the Mars rovers, um, audiences are interested in the technical aspect of space exploration, but they are much more interested in the human aspects. So, you know, a rover doesn't sleep badly when it's stressed. A person does. Uh, eating, sleeping, going to the bathroom, keeping your body clean. These are the most common questions I get mm. from audiences about flying in space. What is the human experience of doing this thing? And no matter how sophisticated a, uh, you know, an artificial intelligence is, it can never have that human experience. And so it's always going to be less interesting to the, the people paying the bills than having a human being there to, to hold that piece of Mars in their hand, to see with their own eyes, you know, the rings of Saturn up close. Um, and actually that's a, that's a key thing we get into with the engineers all the time. They don't want to build windows in our spacecraft. And it's like, yeah, okay. Let me see you sign up for a helicopter tour of the Grand Canyon with all the windows taped over. And then we'll talk about taking the windows out of the spacecraft. Seeing with your eyes is such a fundamental part of the human experience that if you take that away, you take away the experience and there's no point in having the human there. So I think in that sense, AI will never replace the human in terms of being able to um, have the experience, make complex decisions on site. And then to be able to relate that back to the people whose tax money pays for all of this amazing stuff that we do. I also read that you write science fiction. What is your favorite science fiction book and film? I would be hard pressed to identify a favorite book or film for science fiction. Um, if you if you look at my background, you can see a poster for 2001 A Space Odyssey. And that was a good one. A little strange toward the end, but hey, it was, you know, 1970. Um 
Uh, as a kid, I read uh, Ray Bradbury, Robert E. Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, a lot of that. Uh, lately, I've enjoyed uh, Alistair Reynolds. Uh, let's see. Revelation Space, I think, was his first novel. Um, and I feel a certain kinship to him since we're the exact same age, and he is also a professional astronomer. And he puts mm. little uh, Easter eggs in his book books that I sometimes recognize, such as you know quotes from obscure bands that I know about. It's like, oh, interesting. So you also listen to Robin Hitchcock. Let's see for films. Um, my my favorite space film is actually not science fiction. It's an Australian film called The Dish about the radio telescope that supported the Apollo landing, and that's a lot of fun. Mm. Um, most science fiction films, I just shake my head cause they get it all wrong. And, you know, they could have asked somebody who knew something about it. I got a phone on my desk. It never rings. Um, <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed the Martian. So especially the book. Um, and I did get to meet Andy Weir in person. And when he wrote that, he wrote it a chapter at a time and, and posted it to his website. And he had technical experts, including at least one astronaut, but I do not know yet who that was, who would give him feedback on it, and then he'd fix it. So the book gets like an A for science. Uh, the movie, they had to take some more shortcuts and make it look flashier, so the movie gets like a B for science. Uh, Gravity, if you've seen that one. Um, everything inside a spacecraft is photorealistic perfect, gets an A. Everything outside a spacecraft is nonsense and gets an F. So I, on average, I guess that's a gentleman's C. Um, and then, you know, your your Independence Day kind of movies, you know, all right, yeah. first technical error occurs in the first frame of the film. And, mm. and, you know, it's space fantasy or space western, and yeah, they didn't get anything right. Um, for Specifically for movies about uh, aliens, um, I like Contact, you know, based on the book by... Um, Sagan. Uh, Carl Sagan, who is a big, big hero of mine. Um, I think the best book that describes alien contact is Solaris by Stanislaw, Stanislaw Lem. And I know I've mispronounced the L in his last name. I don't know how to pronounce it right. Um, have you ever read that one? No. I, I saw the movie. Yeah, no, I don't see the movies. They it's have nothing terrible. to do with the book. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are about love in space and they're all about people. Um, the book is actually about an, alien contact okay and the the misguided and ineffectual attempts of both parties to communicate <laughs> interesting uh, and and they they just never get it and that is how i think if we actually meet an alien intelligence that's how it's going to be i mean we mm -hmm. can't even yeah. really interact with dolphins and they're pretty exactly. smart and maybe share what 90 percent of our dna with them and yeah. we got nothing. We got nothing to say. Uh, so I I think that sense of, of being just lost and hopeless and having no common ground is going to be fundamental if we ever meet alien intelligences. And most um, depictions of that in science fiction are just, you know, uh, a human being in a rubber suit who behaves like mostly like a human being. And the differences are trivial. So check out the book and then also um a half of that book interleaved each you know there's a chapter about sort of the human story and then there's a chapter that is sort of a fake science paper written you know purportedly by earth scientists about this alien entity and 
trying to describe it scientific terms and, and that doesn't work out too well either. If this podcast episode was a sort of time capsule and a human being heard it in a thousand years, what would you want to say to them? What would you want them to know about those of us living in the 21st century? We weren't thinking about you. And that's obvious. So uh, that's a, that's a tough question. I mean, let's go back to the year 1023 and imagine what a person would say to us now. Their experience would be unrelatable, right? You'd be growing a fair amount of food. You'd be worried about famine in the winter. Uh, you'd be going to church. Uh, half the people you know might have just died from the plague. Um, there is there is so little in common with the experience then and now that trying to predict um, something that would be relevant to humans in the year 3023, I just wouldn't even want to attempt it. But I think that um, our current use of resources, our current treatment of one another globally does not speak to a long view. And I think we could be better about that. And I think we would be better as a species if we had a little bit more awareness in what we do today of how that was going to affect our descendants, our children, our grandchildren, and their descendants uh, in the far future. To all you listeners, you can learn more about Dr. Stan Love on NASA's website at www.nasa.gov. I also highly recommend visiting the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. You can find information about tours and the history of the space program at www.spacecenter.org. Dr. Love, thank you for taking the time to chat with us this evening and to share all your fascinating experiences and knowledge. It was a huge honor, and I wish you all the best in your current scientific and creative endeavors. All right, you're very welcome. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode. We'll see you next week, back here at The Explorer's Roundtable. The Explorer's Roundtable was created to provide a place for explorers to share their tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in fireside discussions relevant to the science, history, and literature of exploration. If you have a story worth telling, we invite you to share it with us at explorersroundtable.com.